Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with the content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Jordan McPherson, and I will be your host today. I'm an oncology clinical pharmacist at Huntsman Cancer Institute and serve as a panelist on the NCCN guidelines for immunotherapy-related toxicity. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Ryan Sullivan, who is a medical oncologist and the director of the melanoma program at Massachusetts General Hospital. We're all faculty for the educational initiative entitled Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors for Cancer Treatment, Current Status, Toxicity Awareness, and Management, that's supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash IRAE. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started. Hi, Dr. Sullivan. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited for our discussion. I am too. Um, I thought we'd start by just talking about what you discuss with a patient for the first time. Uh, and see how you you generally compare treatment with immunotherapy because it differs so much from traditional chemotherapy, which is what many patients kind of expect when they get into the room for the first time when they are diagnosed with cancer. How do you explain that to someone who's newly diagnosed with cancer? Well, Jordan, that's a really important question. And there are a few approaches that I take. I think the first and and most important approach I take is to describe the fact that immunotherapy isn't like the therapies that most of us grew up either seeing patients or seeing our loved ones go through um, or uh, watching movies or television and seeing kind of depictions of cancer chemotherapy where people are losing their hair and they're very sick. And I think when we tend to think about cancer therapy, most people um, think about that. You know, there's sort of the fear of what does this mean? It's a face with mortality, but then also this fear of what is this treatment going to do to me? And so I think it's important to say that's it's not that. Um, and I, I generally will talk about the fact that chemotherapy are chemicals that are cellular poisons and, and that they're designed to target dividing cells. And there's a lot of the side effects are related to attacking dividing cells that you need, like hair follicles or bone marrow cells or um, things like that. And then I pivot and talk about immunotherapy, really from the standpoint of the fact that what we're aiming for with immunotherapy is to allow for a patient's immune system to be better capable of attacking their cancer. And sometimes I use phrases like inspiring your your body to fight your cancer better. And then essentially trying to say that the, there's certainly an, an ability of the immune system to recognize and attack cancer, but every cancer that's been diagnosed has figured out some way around that. And the goal of this treatment is, is to really give your immune system a push, allow your immune system to kind of get over that edge um, and, and, and be able to, to function in the way that is supposed yeah, you know, I, I find that our, our discussions that we have with, with patients when they first come in are, are so already kind of preloaded with their past experiences when they have family members that have gone through chemo and 
and such. They, they have this almost ex- expectation that they're going to be retching in the bathroom, you know, and throwing up. And so it's, I, I feel like that's kind of refreshing whenever we talk with a patient for the first time, especially the people who are, are not going to be getting the chemotherapy combination regimens, but just immunotherapy by itself. Yep. Um, that they, they bring in those kind of experiences and then we can kind of reset those. But, you know, there's a lot of patients of mine that seem to prefer the more natural route and uh, come in with hesitance and even getting any drug at all. And so, um, you know, I, for my patients, at least we often refer, you know, I tell them that this is about the most natural way you can treat cancer is, you know, these drugs don't, you know, many of them, the PDL one inhibitors excluded don't even attach or bind to the cancer itself, but just bind to the immune cells, T cells. So training your own immune system to do it for you. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's kind of fascinating to see how those first visits differ from, from uh, other patients that are getting those kind of other kind of flamethrower type yeah. uh, scorched earth, uh, you know, regimens. Of course, immunotherapy is not, you know, without its risks, there's definitely things to be discussed there. And that's one of the focuses of the talk that we gave together a month ago. You know, there are many ways to try to kind of explain how immunotherapy works. I was wondering if you might be able to share what your preferred analogy is for that and, uh, and also kind of linking that to the side effects that these immunotherapy agents uh, also show with. Sure. So I think the first thing I, I begin to talk about is that we are living on this earth with our immune system in balance, relatively speaking, for healthy individuals. And that I often will use sort of the Goldilocks story or the Goldilocks analogy that, are, that we're living in the just right zone. And if our immune system is too hot, that that's associated with a number of diseases that most people have heard of rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. I'll throw a few out like that. And people generally have some sense that, oh yeah, I, I've heard something about that. And, and then I'll, I'll dig a little or dive a little deeper and say, you know, those are, those are conditions. And I, I usually say there's about <laughs> dozens or hundreds more uh, like that, where our body is too hot. It, the immune system is too hot and it's attacking our normal tissues. Um, and then I say that our immune system also can't be too cold and, and, when it's too cold, we are at risk for infection and cancer. And, and certainly most of our patients who are in their mid thirties or, or older, maybe 40 or older, remember the AIDS epidemic at its worst and remember that uh, there were celebrities or loved ones um, who were dying at a remarkably high rate. Uh, and, and I, sort of highlight that that's an example of when the immune system isn't working. And, and in particular, mm-hmm. this, this part of the immune system that's critical to, to recognize cancer and infections, and that if that's not working, those people who had AIDS, who were infected with HIV, whose immune systems were depleted because of that, before we had better therapies to treat HIV, that they were dying of cancer um, and they were dying and or they were dying of infection. So I think that sort of sets at least in in terms that that I think people get. I mean, usually people get hot, cold, and just right. Um, that it is a um, you know that that's that's how the immune system works. And then that also helps to move forward and talk about toxicity. And and I think the first thing I talk about toxicity, particularly in relationship to chemotherapy, uh, is the tempo 
of toxicity and that it's very different to chemotherapy and that chemotherapy, you can set your watch to when the nausea is going to kick in. You know, you can do the same with when that, you know, kind of get hit with the fatigue, when the counts are going to drop, when you're going to start to feel better again. And and then I usually end within just about the time where you're feeling human again, it's time for your next dose. Right. Right. The timeline's not dependable with immunotherapy at all. Right. And that's, you know, that's what a cycle, a cycle is built on, you know, it was based on this concept that, that chemotherapy toxicity is sort of, um, has various different effects during, or the chemotherapy toxicity is very specific at very specific time points during the cycle. Whereas with, right. with immunotherapy, and I sort of draw this line with my hand and I just say, you're fine until you're not. Um, and then I highlight the fact that that's an absurd thing to say, because that's always true for every condition that humans might find themselves in. But then to say, but really what I mean is it's not specifically related to the exact time when you got treated, that it happens when it happens uh, right. and it's less predictable. Uh, and that, you know, and then I think at least at the very least you're, you're getting through to people that, oh, okay, then it's not, I'm not waiting for the side effect as soon as I come home that I'm, you know, that I'm expecting to feel terrible now and that my colon is going to become really inflamed and I'm going to be in the, the bathroom all night with diarrhea, right? Like it's, yeah. yeah, I think there, there is some expectation setting that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, I, I think your analogy is fascinating because there's kind of two levels of balance here. You're you're trying to shift the the weight of the balance for against the cancer over to the immune system being more active against it because it's it's slowed it down, whereas you're not wanting to shift that balance against the the self antigen and all that. But you know, often we do see that, and so you know that's kind of going to be the more the focus of what we talk about. You know, it's interesting to hear your analogy because I often talk about patients uh, and talk to patients about the analogy of like a race car, their immune system being this souped up amazing race car that has the potential to do everything it needs to do. Um, but the cancer is, you know, basically slamming its foot on the brakes while we're trying to accelerate. And so, you know, getting the brake system to be pulled off is is essentially what we're doing. I mean, it does give them that sense also that we're trying to deactivate a brake system, which is kind of a double negative and sometimes hard for people to appreciate um, in our in terms of dri- driving more positive immune function. Um, but they they connect with that, taking the foot off the brakes um, a lot. Uh, and so, you know, I, I also liken it to a cloaking system. You know, sometimes I say this is like the cancer playing a Jedi mind trick on on your your immune system and so a lot of people who are at least nerds connect with that analogy <laughs> but you know i i think it's fascinating just to see the benefits you know the toxicity from these are so different you know when we were talking about chemotherapy before and you know those expectations often are that you know i'm going to lose my hair i'm going to you know i'm going to be at a higher risk of covid or infection and stuff and we just you know we don't have those struggles i, I think that is that fair to say that you also don't have those types of struggles as well with uh, COVID, at least infection. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the infection risk is just not higher it. and severe fatigue is pretty uncommon unless we do see those uh, patients that have hormone issues, which we might get into, but yeah, it's, it's a lot different uh, risk benefit ratio. And so I think understand getting patients to appreciate that their body might attack itself when we do this, is just kind of like the fundamental risk here. But I think there's this lack of awareness from, non-oncology professionals that it's kind of the same type of lack of awareness that we have from patients that they step in our room and they don't know what to expect we kind of see the same thing from non-oncology folks and ironically and i don't know if you've had the same experience but even some oncology professionals don't they at least have a lack of comfort with immunotherapy is that fair to say yeah i think it's very fair to say and and i think in some ways 
because this isn't that long ago, I remember when I didn't know anything about immunotherapy. And when we didn't, nobody knew anything about immunotherapy. One of the first things that I heard when I was in training and I was in, I don't know, it was a long time ago, but, and I was saying, oh, do these drugs work? And I'd heard about IL-2 and I'd heard about, you know, cytokine therapy and, and had done some research along those lines. Yeah. And we're actually seeing colitis. And I said, oh, that, oh, that's, uh, yeah, I guess you're activating the immune system. That's right, right. Like, you know, cool. And like, no, 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 not so cool. Like this is this is yeah. can be a really big deal. And then, you know, thinking through all of the the logical questions that somebody who's a doctor or or pharmacist or a scientist who's thinking about, oh, well, what what about this? What about that? What about it? so you know, it's not it wasn't that long ago that that we were all right in the, the unknown territory. And so I think it's really when talking to people, it's not like how could you not know that? It's no, these this, these things are crazy. They're different, like any different than anything else. They're they're truly a new class of medications that have a extraordinarily different way of of causing toxicity, and the the approach to that is extraordinarily different. You know, and I think and I think it's also important, particularly if people are thinking, oh, well, it's like it's like ulcerative colitis flare. Like no. It's not an ulcerative right. colitis. The patient still has has the guardrails of their immune system up. We've taken those down, you know. And I think, and I think there, you know, it is important to know that that it's not only that these symptoms may look like autoimmune diseases, but at their worst, they're way worse because yeah. they because they're so rapid in the way that they start that they can just go from patient is well to dead in a matter of days or weeks, which never happens with autoimmune disease, unless it's like an autoimmune disease of like, of like cardiac um, electrical system, which case certainly, you know, sudden death can happen, but people don't die of Crohn's disease like two weeks after they were diagnosed with it. Um, it just yeah, doesn't happen. It's, you know, so I think that's an important um, piece of information that I try and impart when I'm talking to docs. Um, or anybody else who's in the medical field who is new to these drugs or just that. And it can be oncologists too. Oncologists understand toxicity. Uh, you can talk about diarrhea all day long with an oncologist and get into DTO and you know every single anti-diarrheal and strategies to manage it and somatostatin and all kinds of stuff, right? There are like levels upon levels of managing diarrhea. It's like, no, immune suppression. Like, really? Yeah. Right. Like, you know, and so... I think it's it is it's definitely a, a very different approach, but one that can be learned. Obviously, we learned it, and and one that can be taught. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's kind of fascinating how you talk about you know there's there's all these biases that we bring into you know we we want it to match up with what we're used to, and and there's so much lack of comfort here. And I think that it's it's okay. We have to just kind of admit that these are all kind of alternate reality versions of what we see naturally occur with, um, you know, patients who have naturally occurring autoimmune disorders and they differ They're They are different. I mean, I, I like to uh, refer to the sicka syndrome and Sjogren's disease patients. This is an uncommon IRAE we see, but, you know, in, in the naturally occurring disease state, we see it affect the eyes quite a lot. We see it affect the mouth as well, but for whatever reason with immune checkpoint inhibition, we ought to see a dry mouth be the predominant, you know, symptom. Uh, and so that's strange, right? You'd think it'd be the same, but it's not. So, I think it's important to just kind of acknowledge that lack of comfort of the fact that, you know, and, and know that there are still oncologists and other professionals that are still in the same boat. 
I was just talking with some um, breast oncology folks here that, you know, they're just starting to use immunotherapy in early stage triple negative breast cancer. And, and there's that same lack of comfort that I see in, in uh, others that really don't have as much immunotherapy experience as well. So hopefully we can uh, help, you know, kind of ease their minds that that's okay. And I think that it just takes time to see those, these things and talk about it. Um, you know, I, that brings up a good point. There's a study I saw that has estimated that about one in three patients with cancer are now going to be eligible for an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And this is pre, I think all the breast cancer data, a lot of that, uh, it's over one in three patients with cancer are going to have one. So I, I would expect non-oncology professionals to see these drugs on many patients come up in, in uh, other environments where people are not expecting to see them, EDs, hospitals, et cetera. And we, we already are seeing that, you and I, I know. But if you had one main message, uh, Ryan, to talk to other non-oncology clinicians who may see these patients treated with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, what would you tell them? I think I'd start by saying this is the development of, of cancer immunotherapy, particularly immune checkpoint inhibitors, is the greatest advance in the 21st century thus far in the management of cancer. We went from two diseases functionally, two solid tumors where there were immunotherapies that were that patients might be a candidate for, that would be melanoma and renal cell with, a, with, with either interferon or, or interleukin-2 being options, to now innumerable. Uh, I guess it is probably innumerable, but it's, in, it's dozens of diseases. And as you <laughs> mentioned, uh, probably more than a third now, particularly with, with the fact right. that there are now new indications in, in breast cancer and new adjuvant indications that are happening and going to be happening soon. So the, that number will continue to climb. That speaks for itself. It, it, it's it's just it's fundamentally changed the way we think about treating cancer. But there are two, and there's two really important points. That's that's part of the main point, which is one, uh, the immune system when activated appropriately and um, and effectively can lead to durable benefit for patients. It's not true for every cancer for whatever reasons, and we'll sort that out over the next five, 10, 15, 20, 30 years of why some cancers can be cured and some cancers don't seem to be cured. Um, but it can be associated with durable benefit. Uh, and it can be associated with toxicities that are non-traditional in the oncology arena and that need to be thought of as, as it's inflammatory and diarrhea is not, oh, don't worry, chemo causes diarrhea, take modium. It's, do I need to do a scope? Do I need to put this patient on steroids? Do I need, you know, are they gonna perforate? Are they gonna die? You know, the, the thinking has to change around what this, what's causing the side. And every side effect, the other, and the other part of that is every side effect is probably inflammatory. Um, right. There's no side exactly. effect from these drugs that can be anything but that. It could be general inflammation, but it's gotta be inflammation. These drugs don't do anything else. And it's funny, I, you should say that because there are a lot of publications on like, you know, endocrine toxicity, which is what I, the portion that I focused on with the talk here um, that often split off hypothyroidism and, you know, thyroid, uh, hyperthyroidism as if it's two different things and they're not right. It's, it's inflammatory. It's, it's part of the same continuum. All of these things are the itises and they're, it's just inflammatory. So whenever I'm talking to a patient, I make sure to work in the word inflamed in our discussion, because that's the genesis of all the side effects. And so when they understand that it's the immune cells causing inflammation in an organ internally, 
they then understand not only the mechanism of how it's working against their cancer, but also how it's so dangerous for their their bodies because it's like a, an avalanche. After the immune system starts to think an organ is foreign, it will continue to think it's foreign until it has caused you know potentially irreversible damage. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's great. I you know one thing I'd love for non oncology professionals to know is just that purely there is a possibility of an IRAE to occur. You know, the, it, having it. And we're going to talk in a moment about some diagnostic things that we've seen, but, um, you know, having it in your differential when, you know, a provider or a clinician is trying to diagnose something and see this diarrhea or see another issue, having it in the list of, di- of the differential has to be the case or else you don't even consider the possibility. Uh, we just had a patient that was evaluated in a rural setting, which um, I have a lot of experience with because our health system see, you know, sees a lot of rural patients from the surrounding seven states, you know, they went to the ER and had, you know, pulmonary symptoms and and shortness of breath. And they were sent home with an inhaler. They're on immune checkpoint inhibition, right? And they ended up having pneumonitis. And that patient uh, could have been treated earlier, right? And so just that simple recognition that it's a possibility, I think awareness is half the battle here. What, what, speaking of those kind of challenges, what have been your biggest challenges in the management of IRAEs, which again, we're just to review, because we're used to using that acronym all the time, but we're talking about immune related adverse events. So whenever we say IRAE, that's what we're talking about. What have you been your biggest challenges in that? In management well, certainly, of them? certainly there's specific diagnoses that are really, really hard to deal with. So myocarditis is challenging. There's this overlap syndrome of myocarditis, myositis, and um, myasthenia gravis that is horrible, and, and there's significant mortality rate. So, so in terms of specifics, that's probably the biggest challenge is, are, do they have it? Well, you know, and, and working that up, that's, those are the hardest cases, individual cases to manage. But in terms of just in the field and and having my patients, again, we, we are a referral center. So we see a lot of patients that are a couple hours away and they may call their local doctor or go into a, um, you know, the hospital and they're the people that are seeing them are, oh, they have colitis. We're going to treat it like colitis. No, <laughs> it's like, yes, but no, right. Like, like educating people that have their preconceived notions. Oncologists have their preconceived notions, but but specialists do too. And so really trying to, to educate folks, it's it's not, you know, it's a challenge because there's a lot of educating to do, but I think most, most practitioners are really open to learning. And there's a lot of really important data out there and, and there's important guidelines. There's there's places where people can lean to to really understand what's happening and how to manage these patients. Yeah, you know, I we we see like I said a lot of rural patients, and often you know the challenges I've I've seen as well kind of match yours is is just the awareness leads to lack of recognition, lack of urgency, um, lack of even understanding that a patient, for example, with type one diabetes that needs you know adjustment with their insulin can't get in with an endocrinologist locally, you know, four or five hours away. It's a challenge if somebody that's usually in this subspecialty that even just as as a provider doesn't recognize the urgency of seeing a patient like that. I think it, it, it's been a big issue with us even getting those. I think it's a little bit better at your system, but I, I'd hope that a lot of systems could try to work toward a setting where they have a good relationship with those kind of subspecialties and can get in, get the patients in to be seen quickly. 
And, and it's really, particularly if, you, if you're working at a big enough center that has access to enough, you know, a, a sizable number of subspecialists, it's one of the key things, and it's one of the most important things we did was to figure out which docs were interested in this and were willing to help us and learn as we learned and, and which weren't so that we knew who to go to. And, and I think that's true in the rural setting. It's true everywhere, but it, you know, it really yeah. does come down to the relationships that can then build the infrastructure to, to care for these patients. Yeah, in the Absolutely. I think, I think knowing the key players and kind of reaching out to them proactively is kind of the name of the game here is, is kind of getting those relationships established before the problem arises or even knowing. And if you're in a setting where it's not oncology related, knowing who the oncologist is, knowing how to reach them, how to reach out and get guidance on IRAs is the important thing. We have just a few minutes left. I wanted to skip down to a question that we were, you know, we focused a lot on the recognition and management of IRAEs from the perspective of the clinician. I was wondering what role the play, the patient plays in the recognition and management of these IRAEs from your perspective. And a related question, what kind of best practices have you adopted in your clinic so that IRAEs are recognized and treated quickly? So I think it's it's really important to 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 educate patients properly. And, and we have like three or four education sessions, one or two with the docs, one or two with our nurse practitioners, one or two with our nurses. Um, we don't have a clinical pharmacist that's in clinic with us, unfortunately. So if we did, we'd have one or two from them too. Hearing it from different people, but hearing it slightly differently, but the same message, which is you only you can prevent forest fires, but basically like you're the one that's gonna know you have something going on. And empowering patients to say, listen, I don't mind you telling me you're not feeling well, even if you think it's minor. And we may tell you, don't worry about it. We're going to keep an eye on it and we'll call you tomorrow and just check in on it. But I, I basically tell them that there's no symptom that's too trivial or esoteric for me to want to know about it. And I think that that's important to, to really say, you, you, can't, you can't tell me enough. If whatever right. you're feeling is new or different or worse, please tell me. And, and I think we reinforce that on multiple levels at each time we see patients. And I think that that's the most important thing we can do for our patients is to give them the permission to say, oh, and, and the, you know, the worst, of course, are, you know, the, the stoic guys, right? Uh, and I say, there's no, there's no bonus point for stoicism, right? Yeah. Like, don't just, you can tell, you can see them from a mile away and you're just like, just don't do that. Yeah. It's better if it's funny in your family that's, that's there with them <laughs> when you say that. But. Yes. It's funny hearing you talk about this because I, I feel like we are having the same conversations, uh, you know, with different patients, you're, you're trying to tell them to communicate. I think the most important with these uh, thing with these IRAEs is that they're not going to present within a predictable timeline from when the patient receives the drug. So you're literally depending on the patient to communicate. It will, I, I you know, it's almost every case the IRAE presents at home. And so, yeah, I, I, it's funny you say the forest fires. I give an analogy of a red alert zone. I try to give our education sheets that we've built um, because we have a lot of clinical pharmacists and we kind of prioritize education. We love to educate all of our patients. Um, we have these red alert zones built based on the grade two criteria for IRAEs, you know, trying to get them to, to call when we would want to start steroids uh, or at least intervene uh, somewhat. And so, yeah, those kind of conversations I think are so important to have because the patient is they need to be an expert on their own their own therapy in order to be able to appropriately manage these things and not let them get out of hand to the the too severe point that you were mentioning earlier. 
Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But thank you, Brian, for uh, discussing that with me today. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this session of Pharmacy Hot Topics. Don't forget to check out the initiative website we have at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash IRAE. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.